food, please. Thank you, Reverend. It's um, a great pleasure to be with you uh, this evening. As the Reverend said, I work for a ministry called Answers in Genesis. I know some of you may know that ministry, but if you've heard of Ken Ham, Ken founded the ministry over 30 years ago. They just celebrated uh, their 30th anniversary, and as the Reverend said, they do have some themed attractions in America, only things that really the Americans could come up with. Some of you maybe have been to the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum, but they are a great witness to an ever-increasing uh, secular America. And we're going to think about some of those things tonight because we're going to be discussing uh, answering atheism. How can we answer the atheists? And now we do see uh, a change in the United Kingdom, especially in the mainland in England and even in Northern Ireland. Here you can see there's some statistics on the screen from the National Center of social research. And if you notice, there are many statistics like this today that recognize there's a trend in the decline of the Christian worldview. Many people today no longer identify themselves as uh, Christians and would actually describe themselves as non-religious or even atheistic. In fact, the survey says this, overall, the proportion that had never believed in God increased uh, from 13% in 1998 to 20% in 2008, and then in 26% in 2018. And you can see that's increasing every year, all the time, the amount of people that no longer declare themselves to be Christian, rather they declare themselves to be unbelievers. And we see that trend, especially among the younger generations who would identify themselves either as agnostic or atheistic. And I think one of the great things that has done that is the school system, the secular education. I know many Christians um, send their children to the government schools for their education. I'm not going to get into that now, but you need to realize the school system is not what it was in the 1950s and the 1960s. It has radically um, changed over the years, and we're seeing things change all the time, especially in the UK. You know, you think about it, Darwinian evolution is taught as fact in the school system. So it's not neutral when it comes to the existence of God. They declare a positive stance that there is no God. And so if your children are in those systems, then you need to work hard, extra hard, to be able to defend the Christian faith. And this is why I believe, and we believe at the Ministry of Answers in Genesis, we see all these different issues coming out in the Western world today. Because when you think about things like racism, social justice, wokeism, LGBTQ ideology, abortion, um, gender ideology, critical race theory, some of you may not be familiar with those terms, but all those ideas are influencing a generation of people today and how they think about the world around them. And all those ideas really come out of a secular worldview. And in a secular worldview, basically, there is no God. Nature is all that there is. And they believe, of course, in the Big Bang and the evolution of man. So we need to realize as Christians what is before us, what the arguments are. And tonight we're going to consider some things regarding atheism. So we're going to go through six things, some quicker 
than others. We're going to discuss the Bible and atheism. The Bible does have something to say about atheism. It's not very good for the atheists. Um, what is atheism? Is atheism a religion? Because atheists often say, or will say, well, no, we're not religious. You Christians and you other people like Islam, Islamists or whatever are the religious people. But we'll, we'll put that to the test. And then science and atheism, morality and atheism, and then faith and atheism. And hopefully, as we discuss these things, it will give you answers to, to some of the questions that many young people are asking uh, these days. And so the first thing we're going to look at is the Bible and atheism. And this is going to be very short because the Bible is absolutely clear about atheism. Because the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 1 and verses 18 to 20 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath shewed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And here we have the Apostle Paul talking about the knowledge of the atheist. The, the atheist is without excuse because he is not lacking knowledge of God, according to Scripture. Paul says the witness of God in creation is testimony of his existence, and therefore everybody has a knowledge of God. And this is what Paul is saying clearly in Romans chapter 1. And notice he actually says that leads people to be without excuse. In fact, in the Greek, those words are literally there without an apologetic when they stand before God. When they stand before God in judgment day, if they do not confess their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be without a defense when they stand before the Lord God. In fact, I want you to think about it because many Christians will say things like, well, my non-religious friend, I've invited them to church. Well, I want to challenge that because there is no such thing as your non-religious friend. Everyone has a religion. Every person has a belief system because the Bible tells us you're either for Christ or you're what? You're against Christ. You either walk in light or you walk in darkness. There's no such thing as a neutral worldview. And Paul here clearly lays out that every person has a knowledge of God. And so why don't people then believe in God? Well, Paul says that they hold that truth down in unrighteousness, or they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. It's not because God has not made himself abundantly clear in creation. So that's what the Bible says about atheism. So let's think about what is atheism, because when you think about atheism, atheism, the purpose of atheism is to explain life without God. And now we need to, to realize there are different sort of atheists. There's what people call soft atheists, people maybe like your next door neighbor who's basically will say, well, I don't believe in God, and then is maybe very nice to you, kind to you, that sort of thing. And then you have people who would describe themselves as hard atheists. If you know Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, he is very aggressive, and many other people today are very aggressive in their atheism. But if you look up the dictionary definition of atheism, it'll say this, disbelief or lack of belief in the existence of God or God. Now, you're going to hear a clip in a second of a famous celebrity, Ricky Gervais. 
And I want you to listen to what he says. And he's going to say atheism is a lack of belief in God. But other atheists actually will challenge that. And they rightly recognize atheism is not just a lack of belief um, in God because atheists make positive claims. They make positive claims that need to be argued for. Right? You know, when Richard Dawkins, if you remember Richard Dawkins, he wrote a famous book a number of years ago called The God Delusion. In other words, he was making a specific argument against a specific God, mainly the Christian God. He did not entitle the book The Zeus Delusion, right? Because he's not interested in the gods of Greece and Rome. He was making a very specific argument. So atheism is not just a lack of belief. In God, but I'm going to show you a clip now. I want you to listen very carefully to Ricky Gervais. He's, he's obviously, a, I'm not endorsing the things he, uh, the, the, the programs he's on or, his, or, or you know, the movies he makes, etc., etc. But I want you to listen to his argument for atheism. He's on a chat show in America and he's speaking to a talk show host um, called Stephen Colbert. And Stephen Colbert is somewhat of a Roman Catholic, and you'll see that come across in the questions he'll respond to, to Ricky Gervais. But listen to his arguments for atheists, because I go out on the street and do evangelism, and the arguments he uses for atheism are the arguments many young people will use against the Christian faith. So listen very carefully to what Ricky Gervais says about atheism. This is the thing, right? So I'm an agnostic atheist, technically. Agnostics mean it means no one knows whether it's God. So everyone's technically agnostic. We don't know. That's true, so that's true. an agnostic atheist is someone who doesn't know there's a God or not, as no one does. So you're not convicted of your atheism. Well, I am. Sure. No, I am, because atheism is only rejecting the claim that there is a God. Atheism isn't a belief system. Mm-hmm. Atheism, so this, this is atheism in a nutshell. You say, um, uh, there's a God. I say, can you prove that? You say no. I say, I don't believe you then. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you believe in one God, I assume? Uh, in three persons, but go ahead. Okay, so you believe, okay. So, but there, there are about 3,000 to choose from that have been, you know, that people believe in. I disagree, yeah. Okay, so, so basically, you believe in, you, you, you deny one less God than I do. You don't believe in 2,999 gods, and I don't believe in just one more. Right. Do you, do, you, uh, do you ever have a feeling of great gratitude for existence? I know, of course. Do you I, ever have I, know, I, know, I know the chances are billions yeah. to one that I am on this planet as me and never will be again. And I know I can convince you that there, there is a God. In order, I really want to convince you there's a God, but no. I can only explain my experience, which is that I have a strong desire to direct that gratitude toward something or someone. Of course, no, of yeah. course. And that thing is, that thing is done. We're mortal. We don't. We, we want. We want to make sense of nature and science, and, we, and it's too unfathomable that that everything in the universe was once crunched into something smaller than an atom. But you don't really know that. Well, you're just believing but, Stephen Hawking, and that's a matter of faith in his abilities. Yes, you don't know it yourself. You're accepting that because someone told you. Yeah. Well. But science, science is constantly proved all the time. You see, if we take something like any fiction, in any holy book, in any other fiction, yeah. and destroyed it, yeah. okay, in a thousand years' time, that wouldn't come back just as it was. Yeah. Whereas if you took every science book, yes. right, and every fact, and destroyed them all, in a thousand years, they'd all be back. Because all the same tests would be the same result. That's good. That's really good. So, we don't, really good. I don't need... And he goes on and the conversation diverges into other things. But you can see there, I mean, 
Stephen Colbert did push back on him when he challenged him about the origin of the universe and noticed he, he realized there was the tension there. He doesn't know. How does he know those things? How does he know the universe started like that? But he made a specific claim at the very beginning. I know there's a lot to take in there. But he said to the host, Stephen Colbert, when it came to the existence of God, I don't know, you don't know, and nobody can know about the existence of God. But there's a problem with that sort of argument because it makes a specific knowledge claim. How can Ricky Gervais know that? Because it assumes a God who cannot reveal himself to people, right? In that assumption, there's an assumption, God cannot reveal himself to people. But how does Ricky know that? How does he know that the creator cannot reveal himself to people? Does Ricky have all knowledge of all things? No, he doesn't. He's limited in his knowledge. See, he made a specific claim. If the host was thinking on his feet a bit better, he should have challenged them. How do you know that I don't know that God exists? Because Ricky doesn't know everything. He's finite in his knowledge. See, he made a specific claim there. How does he know that God cannot reveal himself? Because the Bible tells us God has um, reveal himself to people. And then Stephen Colbert sort of said, well, don't you ever feel gratitude towards something? And he, and he said, yeah, I do feel uh, gratitude. But to whom does Ricky Gervais feel gratitude? If there's no God and nature is all that there is and the world just exploded into existence. Who is Ricky Gervais shown his gratitude to? You know, he's like a He's a person dressed all, all up who's ready to go to a party but with nowhere to go. Because if you're going to show gratitude, you show gratitude to another person, right? But if there is no God and nature is all that there is, then who is he shown gratitude to? But then lastly, if you've heard what he says when he was challenged a bit, he said, well, but science is, is constantly being um, proved and you can prove things in science and, and that's true and he was trying to say basically the Bible's an old book and the things in it have been shown um, to be disproved but it's, it's not true what he said about science textbooks it's manifestly false because what he said can be demonstrably shown to be not true because Darwin postulated in his books that certain human races were inferior on an evolutionary basis. Now, would he be wanting to state that today? Because that was science of the day. Would he want to be saying that today? I doubt he would, because people would cancel him. See, notice Ricky believes in books that are written by men that change all the time, and he can never be certain of certain things. See, he believes in books, but he believes in books that are written by fallible men. But as Christians, we are saying we believe in the revelation that God has provided to us in the Word of God. And so you need to think about those arguments. And the other one, just lastly, ended that when he talked about, you know, you. You Christians, you believe in one more God than I don't believe in. There's all these other gods in the world. There's 2,999 gods, and you know I just believe in one less God to you. He's obviously read Richard Dawkins. That's a famous argument, Richard Dawkins. In fact, there's many more gods than that. But the Bible has an answer to that. The Bible calls them what? Idols, right? That's idolatry. 
When people worship all these false gods, the Bible says that's idolatry. Those gods did not create the heavens and the earth. And Jeremiah says they will perish from the earth. So the answer to that, if Stephen Coulbert was actually a consistent Roman Catholic and he didn't really want to push back too much, he should have said, yeah, that's idolatry. There is one true God. Those other gods are false gods. But what about the claim is atheism a religion? Of course, atheists are going to say, no, it's not a religion. Um, but as I said at the beginning, from a biblical viewpoint, all of life is religious. Given what Paul said in, in Romans chapter 1, all of life is religious. You either worship the one true and living God or you worship creation. Now, if you look at a dictionary, when it comes to the definition of religion, it'll say something like this, the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God or gods. Now, if you define religion that way, of course, atheism would not be a religion because it doesn't, atheists don't believe in a personal God and they reject the existence of God. So by that definition, okay, atheism isn't a religion, but that's not all the dictionary says about religion because it goes on to say, um, a particular system of faith and worship, or a pursuit of interest followed with great devotion. Now, if you define atheism as a religious that way, then it is a religion, because atheists spend much of their time railing against a creator who they say does not exist. And so you have Richard Dawkins has many followers who follow him with great devotion. And so in, in that definition, yeah, we would say atheist, atheism is a religion. But there's also another way to show that atheism is a religion. I remember when I was studying for one of my degrees, I had to read this man, Ninian Smart. He's an anthropologist, and he wrote a book called The Dimensions of the Sacred. And in the book, basically, he gave you seven criteria for detecting uh, a religion. If he said, if you want to um, know if someone a person or a group of people are religious, then you look for these seven things. You look for a narrative, you look for an experiential aspect, a social aspect, a doctrinal aspect, an ethical aspect, a ritual aspect, and a material aspect. And he said, if you find those things in a person or a group of people, then they're religious. This is from one of the world's leading anthropologists. Now, just apply this to atheism, and you will see that atheism is a religion because we need to stop letting them off the hook saying well I'm not religious no you are religious and your religion comes through see they have a narrative what's the narrative of atheism well Richard Dawkins said this in his book um, the blind watchmaker he said Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfill fulfilled atheist in other words before Darwin you could have been an atheist but you wouldn't sort of be intellectually fulfilled but since Darwin came along um, and presented his idea of evolution we can now be intellectually fulfilled as atheists and here's the thing Darwin actually wasn't an atheist he was an agnostic but atheism is built upon the narrative on the worldview of Darwinian evolution so it does have a narrative as as christians we have a narrative in scripture right creation fall redemption through christ on the cross and we look forward to the redemption of creation and the new heavens and the new earth that is the narrative the account of um 
history we have in the Bible, but atheism also has a narrative. And they also have an experiential and social aspect. In uh, the early 2000s, the first atheist church opened up, and there are at least 63 around the world. I know it's pretty ironic that they would actually want to meet together, um, but they did an interview with a Telegraph um, a number of years ago, and uh, the, the interview read like this. The first event took place in the deconsecrated Union Chapel in, in London, so it took place in a former church uh, in 2013. It said some 300 people attended the launch, a typical Sunday assembly. Why, do, why the meeting on a Sunday? What reason would that be? Because uh, it consists of a sing-along, pop songs rather than hymns, a secular reading, a talk that helps the congregation live better, help often, or wonder more than the company's mantra, followed by a moment of reflection, then tea and cake. Obviously, as, as British people, they have to end with tea and cake. Even the atheists do. But just think about it when they talk about live better, help often, and wonder more. Well, when you say we want to live better than, that assumes a standard of morality. Well, as we're going to see in an atheistic worldview, what standard do you have? Live better than what? Do you have a, a standard to live better by? And what do you have to wonder more about? If the world is all that there is and there's no God and nature is all that there is, then what are you wondering about? See, again, it doesn't make sense. They also have a doctrinal aspect. You know, um, a number of years ago, Richard Dawkins teamed up uh, with the Humanist Society in the UK, and they went around some major cities, Birmingham, Manchester, London, and you can see on the side of the bus there they had an evangelistic message saying there's probably no God. Notice, they didn't even print with certainty there is no God. There's probably no God. See, they're very evangelistic in what they want to try and do. They're trying to reach people with their atheism, and so there is a doctrinal aspect. There's also and ethical aspects. He's an atheist by the name, a man by the name of Daniel Dennett. He's, a, he's an American atheist, and uh, he said this in one of his books. Many declare there's a sacred and inviolable right of life. On the other hand, many of the same people declare that once born, the child loses its right not to be indoctrinated or brainwashed or otherwise psychologically abused by those parents. In other words, he's talking about uh, religious parents, Christian parents will teach their children about the, the reality of God, the Bible, the accounts in the Bible, the fact there's a heaven and the fact that there's a hell. And he's saying if you teach those things, then you are brainwashing your children. In fact, you're abusing your children. But again, when he talks about ethics, he's an assuming a standard by which he's judging people by. What standard is it in an atheistic worldview, but many atheists will accuse Christians today of teaching child abuse. And then lastly, you have um, a material aspect to atheism. This is a lady by the name of Gail Bradbrook. She said this in the Times a number of years ago. Um, if you don't know who Gail Bradbrook is, do you all know who Extinction Rebellion are? Yeah, you know who you know all those people that caused the disruptions in in England, uh, blocking the roads and everything. Well, she founded Extinction 
Rebellion. Gail Bradwick was one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion. But notice, she says, I don't believe in God like there's some person there organizing everything. I think there's something inherently beautiful and sacred about the universe. And I think you can feel that just as well as an atheist. A bit of me thinks, is there a way to have some form of dialogue with the universe? Again, if nature is all that there is, what type of dialogue are you trying to have with the universe but here's the thing often you will see and people like Richard Dawkins admit this that atheism actually ends up it should logically end up in pantheism pantheism is basically the worship of nature and that's what Gail Bradbrook is is saying here she wants a dialogue with the universe she thinks the universe is sacred and this is why many of these people are so caught up in the climate agenda it's basically worship of creation. And I think, actually, the Bible does say something about that, doesn't he? Paul goes on in his argument in Romans, doesn't he? He says this, Wherefore, God also gave them up to the uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And then he says, Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so... Here's the thing, from a biblical point of view, atheists have sinfully taken the truth of God's world and convinced themselves it is not true. They've sinfully taken the truth about God's world and convinced themselves that is not true. And they worship the creation because everyone worships something. We are all worshipers, as I said before. You either worship the one true and living God or, Paul says, you worship creation and you do that in a thousand different ways but what about this argument science and atheism because atheists will often accuse uh, christians of being unscientific and you know the bible is uh, refuted by science they will say and obviously when they're thinking about that they're talking about evolution and so on and so forth but it's not the bible um or science, or you know, or you have to choose between religion and, and uh, sorry, science and the Bible. And, and science and atheism actually don't go together. In fact, many of the founding fathers of science, if you think about people like Johannes Kepler, Isaac Newton, Galileo, all these men were Christian men. They believed in the existence of God and they laid the foundation for science. What it really is, is scientism. And you can see there the dictionary de definition of scientism, which is basically complete belief in scientific methods or in the truth of scientific knowledge. In other words, only science itself can account for truth. But that is, again, it's a religious position because science itself can't account for a number of things. But notice today, there are many people who reject science when it comes to basic things like biology. Because in the beginning, what did God create? He created mankind in his image, and he made them what? Male, XY, and he made them female, XX. There are only two options. But many people, because of their feelings, reject science and say, well, I feel this way about who I am. And they reject the scientific method, which confirms what the Bible says, by the way. But when you think about this, can God be proven by science? Can God be proven by science? Well, no, 
because science deals with the material world. Science deals with the here and now, the present physical material world. So trying to prove God or, or heaven by science would be trying to, to find plastic with a metal detector. It'd be trying to like go into the beach and you're hunting for metal, but you, you're hunting for plastic with a metal detector. It's, it's, a, it's a category error. You cannot use science to prove um, the existence of God, because the Bible tells us God is spirit who transcends both space and time. He's not a physical being. God is an eternal being who existed before the creation of the world. So the immaterial God created the physical universe. You know, when people like Ricky Gervais and others like Richard Dawkins, often when they critique Christianity, it's, it seems like they have a false view of God in their minds. They're often thinking about the gods of Greece and Rome, but God is not like the gods of Greece and Rome. The gods of Greece and Rome did not create the world. The world was already in existence before they came along. But the one true God in the Bible is the creator of all things. He's the self-existent I am who proclaimed his name to Moses. But what we need to realize is that we cannot make sense of things such as science unless God exists. You know, we believe in things like the uniformity of nature, that nature is uniform, that there are laws in nature like gravity. If I throw this up in the air, it's going to come down. And if I come back here tomorrow night and throw throw it up in the air, it'll come down again and so on and so forth. We can do those things because there is such thing as uniformity in nature. There is a consistency in nature. Now, why is there a consistency in nature? Well, the Bible tells us that God is consistent in his nature. But think about it. If the world popped into existence in a moment in time and then randomly evolved, how could you trust the laws of nature? Why would you expect to to throw this control up in the air one day and then to do the same thing the next day? How do you know that things are going to do that same thing? The reason we can trust the laws of nature, like men like Isaac Newton could do his, his theory of motion and relativity, etc., because they believed that God was consistent in his nature. Atheists have no reason to believe in the things like um, the laws of nature. They should believe in them, and they do, but they have no foundation to believe in them. But when people talk about science, what they're really talking about is the Big Bang and the evolution of man, the fact that we come from, in their minds, a common ancestor. That's why many people today reject the Bible when it comes to these things. But if you just look at the dictionary definition of science, what science really is, is is knowledge. And you can have knowledge of the world in a number of different ways. The main way in which we have knowledge of the world, which produces good science, is what we call experimental or observational science. That's using your five senses in the here and now in the present world to go out and investigate the world. And when you do that, you can come up with great technology like satellites, mobile phones. You know, you can visit the doctors and the doctors can prescribe you medication. That is great science. And we do not reject that sort of science. What we are challenging when we challenge the Big Bang and the evolution of man is a certain view of science called historical or origin science. Now, historical or origin science is your belief about the past history of the world when you were not there to see 
what went on. Because even atheists would agree with this. What scientist was there to see the Big Bang? Well, no one was. Or, if you believe it, um, ape-like creatures turning into people. Well, no one was there. That is your belief about what happened in the past. And even as Christians, we believe in historical science. Because when we say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, who was a witness to that? God. No human being was there, and we trust in that revelation from God because it is consistent with what we see. But here's the thing. The reason we come to different conclusions regarding the origin of the world and man being made in the image of God is because we have two different foundations. We have two different worldviews. One is a worldview, if you're an evolutionist, an atheist, you have a foundation of naturalism and you'll view the world that way. But if you're a Christian, your foundation is the revelation of God. You have a supernatural worldview and your worldview should dictate how you think about all evidence that you see. For example, what does that say? I know not people in Northern Ireland don't like giving answers in, in, in church, but just think about it. What does it say? Does it say God is now here, or does it say God is nowhere? See, some of you are now thinking, oh, what could it be? No atheists in the audience tonight, I hope. Anyway, but if you were here tonight as an atheist, you could say God is nowhere. But if you're a Christian, obviously you're going to say God is now here because your worldview determines how you read evidence. And we need to realize that because there is no such thing as a person who is neutral in their thinking. I said at the beginning, you're either for Christ or you're against Christ. You either walk in light or you walk in darkness. Jesus didn't say there's a middle ground, a gray area that you walk in. It's either light or darkness. Now just think about this when it comes to DNA. That molecule of heredity, those two chains that form a double helix that carry genetic instructions. Now, again, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, on page one, one of the very first things he says is this, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of being designed. Now, just think about that. He's looking at DNA, he's looking at biology, and he's saying it gives the appearance of being designed. Notice he notices that it's complicated. But why doesn't he just say it's designed? What stops him from saying DNA is, uh, is designed? Well, if it is designed, what's the next question then you have to ask logically? Who is the designer? And that's where he does not want to go. See, his bias comes through. See, when you look at DNA, what it screams is in the beginning, God created. Because DNA is not just chemistry. You know, DNA uh, carries complex coded information, just like in this Apple Mac I've got here tonight with my presentation. Um, it's got a, uh, computers all have software programs. Where did those programs come from? Well, they came from, we know this from experience, they come from what? Computer Programmers, someone put the program in the computer. Now, with DNA, the information in DNA has instructions to form a living being. And that information can only be generated by intelligent um, sources. It can't come from natural, uh, mindless sources. It comes from an intelligent source. So we know DNA um, cannot come about by random chance. 
information, genetic information, even information in a computer, always comes about through an intelligent source. And we can say, yeah, that intelligent source, we believe it's consistent with what the Bible teaches, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm going to show you another clip because this is very telling, I believe, because I want you to think about what evidence would convince atheists of God, God's existence. Now, there might be atheists out there that will say, yeah, I'll consider the evidence for God's existence. But many atheists today actually say, well, actually no evidence would convince me of God's existence. Again, I want you to listen to a clip um, between two atheists. One is an American man um, by the name of Peter Bogosian, and he's interviewing the, the British atheist Richard Dawkins. And listen to the answers uh, Richard Dawkins gives to Peter Bogosian's questions. That the host of arguments don't work. What, what would it take for you to believe in God? Well, I used to say uh, it would be very simple. It would be, uh, you know, the second coming of Jesus or, or a great, big, deep, booming bass Paul Robeson voice um, uh, saying, I am God and, and, and I created. But I was persuaded mostly by actually uh, Steve Zara, who's a, who's a regular contributor to my website, richarddawkins.net. Um, he, he more or less persuaded me that if you, even if there was this, this booming voice in the second coming in clouds of glory, the more probable explanation is that it's a hallucination or a conjuring trick by David Copperfield or something. Um, uh, I mean, he, he, he made the point that a supernatural explanation for anything is incoherent, that, that it just doesn't sort of... It, it, it doesn't add up to an explanation for, for anything. Well, um, alternative explanations, that's why I'm not persuaded by either an internal state, certainly not a feeling state. So Clark's third law, um, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, magic being super, supernatural. Um, if, you were to, if you were to fly a Boeing 747 back to the Middle Ages, um, you would be greeted as God. I mean, that would be, um, and, and similarly, an, an alien visitation. Any, any aliens who would actually visit us would have to be so far beyond us in their technology that they probably could manipulate the stars to, to um, spell out words or geometric forms or something like that. So, so that couldn't be enough. So, you, so what, would, what would persuade you? Well, I'm starting to think nothing would. Uh, which, which, is, which in, in a way goes against the grain, because I've always paid lip service to the view that a scientist should change his mind when evidence is forthcoming. The problem is I can't think what that evidence would look like. Did you, did you hear what he said at the end there? He, evidence isn't going to convince him, but notice he said he used to pay lip service um, to, the, to the view that scientist, a scientist should change his mind um, based upon the evidence, and that's true. If you're a scientist and the evidence is forthcoming then you, and it proves what you believe wrong, then you should change your mind. But what is lip service? Lip service is basically when you say one thing, but your actions show um, you don't really believe 
what you're saying. So Richard Dawkins even there is, is a bit contradicting himself. But notice he was basically saying there isn't any evidence that would convince him of God's existence because he could always come up with a rescuing device to explain away the evidence, whether it's the second coming of Jesus or whether it's God speaking to him in an audio voice. He said, basically, you could explain that and just say, well, it's maybe a magic trick or, or it's a hallucination. Aliens are tricking me, he said. How, how do I know it couldn't be those things? See, he, he had this rescuing device in order to explain away the evidence. In other words, Dawkins has a methodology that is immune to evidence. And that's not a good place to be if you're a scientist. You should not be immune to the evidence. But I want you to think about it. Imagine tomorrow morning, you've watched this clip tonight and you're walking down the street and you uh, meet Richard Dawkins. You know, remember what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 26, verses four and five, it says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then it says, answer a fool according to his folly. And so keep that in mind because let's say you're walking down the street and Richard Dawkins was coming um, towards you. You could say, you know, Mr. Dawkins or Dr. Dawkins, what a pleasure it is um, to meet you. And you could say to him, I just have one question for you, Dr. Dawkins. Could you prove your own existence? Could you prove your own existence? And I'm sure Richard Dawkins would probably look at you and think, what a strange question. What a weird question to ask me. Here I am. I'm standing in front of you. You can see me with your own eyes. I'm speaking to you. I'm conversing with you. And you're asking me to prove my own existence. But then you could say, well, Dr. Dawkins, how do I know that it's not a magic trick, or how do I know it's, I, I'm not experiencing an illusion, or aliens aren't tricking me. See, you could refute him by his own arguments. This is what the Bible says. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you're going to be like him. If he's told you he does not believe that any evidence will persuade him, what shouldn't you present to him? Evidence. If he's told you that, don't give him evidence. But use his own worldview against him. Because, yeah, prove to me you exist. How do I know that you're even real? See, if that's your methodology, then you shouldn't be even in science. See, it tells you there's a spiritual issue going on here. What about atheism and morality? Because atheists not only argue that you don't need God for, for morality, but they'll, they'll argue that belief in God is actually immoral and that the Bible is an immoral book itself. In fact, sorry to pick on Richard Dawkins, he's, he's just provided us with a lot of ammunition, but in the, in the book, The God Delusion, he wrote this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous uh, and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiven, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, and then he goes on, it sounds like he swallowed a dictionary. Anyway, that's what he says about the God of the Old Testament. It's blasphemous to say that about God, but that's how he views God. Notice he's imposing a moral standard on God. You know, when you think about the ark, Richard Dawkins and other atheists will say, if God is good, how could he be so capricious 
to wipe all those innocent people out in the flood. How could he be so capricious? You might have had someone... Um, is that gone? Is it back? Right, I'll be careful. Okay, it's back. But people do, atheists do aim those things at Christians. How can you believe in a God who judges people in a flood? But think about it. Did they take time to read the account in Genesis? Richard Dawkins has obviously read the Bible, but he chooses not to look at some things. Because look at the reasons God gives for judging people at the time of the flood. It talks about the, Genesis talks about the wickedness of man. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The earth was corrupt. The earth was filled with violence. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. That doesn't sound like an innocent people to me. God wasn't judging capriciously, and he wasn't judging innocent people. In fact, Peter talks about when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. God was long-suffering with the generation of the flood. But here's the thing. Richard Dawkins actually has no foundation, and he's inconsistent with his belief in what he's actually saying here because he wrote in his book, The River Out of Eden, he said this, the universe we observe is precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, then notice what he says, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. See, if there is no evil, no moral evil and good in the universe, then how can Richard Dawkins himself accuse God or anyone of being evil? He doesn't have a standard to differentiate between good and evil because he's an atheist. He believes that all that there is in the universe is blind, pitiless indifference. Now, there's actually some inconsistency here because he wrote that in 1995, but... Some of you may remember, some of you may not be old enough to remember, but in 2006, remember, he made a program on, on Channel 4, don't know if you got it in Northern Ireland, um, The Root of All Evil. And he's talking, basically, he's talking about Islam, but mainly about Christianity. But how can he say the root of all evil when he said there's no evil and no good in the universe? See, it's an inconsistency in his argument. He has no basis to accuse Christians or the God of the Bible of being evil. See, he's an honest atheist, a man by the name of Joel Marx, and he said this in his Atheist Manifesto. It's quite interesting. He said this, The long and short of it is I became convinced that atheism implies amorality. And since I'm an atheist, I must therefore embrace amorality. The religious fundamentalist, that's People like me and you, if, if you're a believer, are correct. Without God, there is no morality. But they are incorrect, I still believe, about there being a God. Hence, I believe there is no morality. See, there is someone who is consistent in their atheism. He believes that atheism leads you in the line, in the direction of amorality. He would say, Richard Dawkins is a soft atheist. He believes in morality, but he shouldn't if he's going to be a consistent atheist. See, the reason 
why those atheists can even talk about good and evil is because the, is the reality of the Bible and the fact that we are made in the in image of God. The reason we have an innate sense of morality is because we are God's creatures. That's an inescapable fact. We are God's creatures made in him, his, his image and therefore we intrinsically know what's right and wrong. But what about faith and atheism? Well, when you think about the word faith itself, it's become a buzzword, I think, today for putting your intellect out of gear. Atheists will often say, well, you people just have faith. In other words, you're not rational people. You're not intellectual people. You're not thinking people. You just have this blind faith. In fact, the atheist Sam Harris once said this, faith is nothing more than the license that religious people give one another to believe such proposition when reason fails. In other words, faith is not based upon evidence. And, and in some respects, I can agree with Sam Harris here because some Christians do present the Christian faith as if there was no evidence for it. They'll just say, well, I believe. I just have faith. But that's not how the Bible defines faith. I want you to think about this. How does the Bible define faith? If you look up dictionaries, lexicons, Greek dictionaries, Greek lexicons, how the word faith is used in the New Testament. It's very interesting because the most common word for faith is the Greek noun pistis and believe is the Greek word um, pistuo. Now pistis refers to a state of believing based on the reliability of the one trusted. In other words, you should use words like trust, confidence, faith. In fact, trust is probably a better word to use than faith, because today, when you talk about faith, people think, well, it's just a blind faith. But trust is, is confidence in something. And that's what these dictionary, Greek dictionaries define faith as. Pistuo is, is considering something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. And then, even in classical Greek, before the time of the New Testament, pistis refers to conviction, certainty, and proof. This is how the Bible uses those words. It's not talking about faith in a general, vague sense. It's talking about being certain of something. Because, just think about it, what one thing do you have to believe, or that the, at least that Paul points to in the New Testament, in order, what do you have to believe to be a Christian? I want you to think about it. I know, I know I'm going to struggle to get answers, but just think about it. What one thing do you have to believe in to be a Christian? Well, Paul says this, doesn't he, in Romans 10.9, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe, that's the word pistuo, in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Paul is saying that you, in order to be a Christian, you need to believe in the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he's not still in the grave. You know, saving faith in the Bible is never vague. It always has a content. And Paul points us to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe that he's not in the grave. You need to believe that he's resurrected from the dead, that he's in heaven now, interceding for his people. That is what faith is. In fact, think about it when the Apostle Paul himself went to Mars Hill in Acts 17 and he was witnessing to the, the pagans there, the Stoics and 
um, the Epicureans, well, if you, if you know anything about the Stoics and the Epicureans, the Stoics basically had a, a pantheistic view of God, and they believed reason was, was the chief principle by which we ought to live. And the Epicureans were basically like today's atheists. They believe um, in a materialistic view of the universe. And so either if they did believe in the gods, the gods either didn't exist or they were so far removed from the reality, reality that they did not have an influence on reality. But how does Paul present the gospel to the Epicureans and the Stoics? Notice if you go to Acts 17, he notices they have a wrong foundation. He doesn't just start with the cross of Christ. He says, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to tell you who that God is. And he says this, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things. Notice he takes them back to creation. He's taken them back to the book of Genesis and explaining who the God of creation is because the Greeks either didn't believe in the gods that were so far removed or they believed in many gods. They didn't have that belief in the one true creator God. And so Paul recognizes this is a foundational issue. We have to deal with this foundationally. And that's what he does in his evangelism. And that leads him, therefore, to talk about Christ and the resurrection. And you see this in Acts 17.31 because Paul says this, because he hath, that's God, appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he have ordained. Wherefore he have given assurance. If you look at the Greek word, that's the word pistis. Assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And see, that's what really got uh, the Greeks upset. That if He talked about the fact that this man was raised from the dead, because if you look at that word, anastemi, and whenever it's used in the New Testament, it always refers to that which is dead coming back to life again. It's talking about a physical resurrection from the dead. And if you know anything about what the Greeks believe, they, they hated that idea. They didn't think that the body would be reunited with the soul. Because in the, in the Greek mind, the body was evil and the soul was good. And you wanted the soul to escape or the spirit to escape the body. You didn't want it to be reunited. But Paul says, yeah, that's what will happen in the resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was bodily raised from the dead. A physical transformed body. And this is what Paul is presenting to people. But notice the reaction. Uh, Luke in, in Acts says this, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, another said, we will hear thee again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. Notice there are at least three reactions there. People mocked and rejected, some of them at least, rejected Paul's message. They mocked at him. Others said, you know what, Paul, I'm not sure about this, but I'll hear you again on it. But some believed. Now, if you go out into the world today and you do evangelism, I'd suggest to you, because I've seen this, that you get the same reaction because we live in a similar culture to Acts 17, where people don't believe in the one true creator God. And some people will mock at you. Some will say, oh, I might hear you again on this. And others will believe. But notice the Greeks did not reject the resurrection 
because of the evidence. They rejected the resurrection because of their worldview. Here's a quote from an atheist, Gerd Ludemann. Gerd Ludemann um, passed away recently. He was a New Testament professor, and he's an atheist, which is a bit strange. Why would you want to study the New Testament if you're an atheist? He was a German man. But notice he says this, Jesus' death as a con consequence of crucifixion, notice what he says, is indisputable. He's an atheist, but he recognizes the evidence for the crucifixion of Christ. He says that evidence is indisputable. Now, there is a people today, a couple of people, groups, who would deny the evidence for the resurrection. One would be Muslims. They don't believe Jesus was crucified. And another would be Jesus mythicists, people who do not believe that Jesus was a real person. But he's an ardent atheist, and he recognized Jesus was crucified. If Jesus was crucified, he existed. And since we know he was crucified, he obviously existed. And so we believe that Jesus was hung on that cross. But why did Jesus die? Why did he die? Because of sin. The Bible tells us he was on that cross because of our sin. Man is not inherently good but he's inherently sinful. But the Bible tells us that Jesus lived a perfect life. He never committed a sin. But the principle in the Bible is if that you don't sin, you shouldn't die, which tells us Jesus was not paying for his own sin, but the sins of others. But here's the thing. We know that Jesus was crucified, but the question is, did he rise from the dead. We need to think about the resurrection of the Christian faith um, because it's the most important event of the Christian faith. The Bible tells us that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. But is there any evidence for the Christ is there any evidence for the resurrection? Well, how do you know how do we know Jesus was raised from the dead? How do you know anything happened in history? Well you go to reliable historical sources. And the earlier the sources, the better. Now, if you talk to a critical scholar, people who don't believe the Bible is, is the inerrant, infallible word of God, they would say certain letters, only certain letters of Paul are reliable. One of those letters they'll say that is reliable is the book of Corinthians. And they will say that is an authentic letter of Paul. Obviously, we accept all the Pauline um, epistles, the, the reasons they give for them are not very good, but they only accept certain letters um, from Paul. I'm going to get quickly move on to this because we're running out of time. But they would say Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written by the Apostle Paul in about 51 um, to 52 AD. Jesus was crucified about AD 33, so this is not long after Jesus was crucified. 20 years is not that long. I just skipped over some sources of Alexander the Great. Those were written hundreds of years after the events, and yet people would say those are reliable historical sources. But notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen 
um, of Cephas and then of the twelve. And after that, he was seen about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and then all of the apostles. So notice Paul presents an argument that he had received from people. And the argument, what he received was about Christ's death, his burial, um, the fact that he rose again and that he was seen by many people. Now, this section of Corinthians is very important because this Bible scholar, James Dunn, says this, this tradition, he's talking about 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 7, he said, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as a tradition within months of Jesus' death. Think about that. If Jesus died in, in AD 33, he's saying, other scholars say a couple of years, but this scholar's saying in a couple of months after Jesus died. That's amazing, because Paul said he received this from other Christians. And Christians were talking about these things months after Jesus had um, died. Just think about what Paul was talking about. He talks about the empty tomb. Who, who saw Jesus? Well, he talks about the fact that there were individuals who saw Jesus. Peter, James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Paul saw Jesus. He talks about small groups, the 12 disciples. He talks about a large group, 500 people. Friends of Jesus saw him. Peter and the apostle and even foes, enemies of Jesus saw Jesus. Because James, the half-brother of Jesus, was originally, if you read the Gospel of John, was an unbeliever. Imagine being the half-brother of Jesus and not believing in him. But he was an unbeliever at first. Paul, Saul, on the road to Damascus, was going to persecute the church. But yet, all these people had experiences of Jesus. And so we know Jesus was alive after his death because of the post-resurrection appearances. Now, he's Gerd Ludeman again. Notice what he says. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. That's, that's interesting. Again, he's not a Christian. He's an atheist, but he's saying it's, you, can, you can take that as, as historically certain that um, Peter and the disciples experienced the risen Christ after he had risen from the dead. Now, he has motives to explain this away, a bit like Richard Dawkins, because Ludeman would say, well, these were hallucinatory experiences um, brought on a by guilt complexes. You know, the disciples were so guilty that Jesus had died and he hadn't come back to life that they had these experiences and they basically hallucinated that they thought they saw um, Jesus. But that theory does not work because hallucination does not account for the, for the empty tomb or the conversion of the apostle Paul because Paul did not have a guilt complex. In, in Acts chapter 9, he is actively going to persecute the church. He wasn't feeling guilty at all. That was something he rejoiced to do until he was converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And just think about all the people that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to. They couldn't all have hallucinated because hallucination is not a contagious thing. It's not like a disease, that you, a cold that you catch around, Right? One of us might hallucinate tonight, but it doesn't mean everyone will catch it. In fact, if you think about it, I had a cousin who was in the SAS, and they go through these you know, 
weeks of training, and sometimes in those training weeks, in order to pass it's a really rigorous course, some of them will hallucinate, but not all of them will. It's not something that's contagious. So trying to explain it away by hallucination or guilt complex just doesn't work. And so the only thing you're left with is that these people really did see the risen Christ. We'll end with this. See, the only reason to reject the evidence for the resurrection is either because of a worldview that you have, naturalism, you reject the existence of God, or the fact that you just don't want to listen to what Jesus has to say. Because in his earthly ministry, what did our Lord Jesus say? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, he said this, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 35, whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels, the same shall save it. See, giving your life to Christ will result in life from God when this earthly life ends. But there are only two reasons to reject the resurrection. It has nothing to do with the evidence. It's either your worldview or you just don't want to listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say. And I pray that each and every one of us tonight will know the risen Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that we will be obedient in what he teaches his church. Well, I'm going to end there. Thank you for your attention. But before I do that, as the Reverend said at the beginning of the talk, we do have a lot of books there, and I would encourage you to maybe think about um, getting hold of some of those to equip yourself or to equip people you know in your family, your friend circles. There's a book there called The Ultimate Proof of Creation. If you want to know how to give a defense of the Christian faith, how to give an apologetic, I'd highly recommend this book. Then we have a, uh, a series of book called, uh, books called The Answers Books, Answers 1, 2, 3, and 4. You can buy those for £12 each or £35 for all four. And they'll deal with the most common questions you get asked today in a secular world. How do you know God exists? What's the evidence of God? How do we know all the books that are in the Bible? You know, where did God come from? What do you do with the dinosaurs? All the dating methods, all those issues will be answered in those books. If you don't want big books, you want something something small to deal with that you can read over a cup of coffee. Well, we've got all these little books called Pocket Guides, and there is one there on atheism. I would encourage you to get hold of those because we need to equip the people of God in this generation. And so I'll finish there and hand back over to the Reverend. Thank you for your attention. We do thank our brother for coming tonight and uh, bringing uh, that uh, talk to us. We do rejoice in the evidence that we have. We uh, do have evidence of our faith, and it is, an, it is a, a faith, really, that is built on evidence. It's not blind faith. And you think of the arrogance of atheists. I got into debate on our Facebook page with an atheist, and there was that arrogance there. It was very evident after a while that he thought that he was dealing with somebody that, um, well, didn't have a degree. He had a degree, and he felt that uh, he was intellectually superior. Um, but 
In the end, he had to recognize that he had a faith, and his faith is that there was no God. He had no evidence for that, but I have an evidence for the God that I worship and serve because he is my Savior. He is with me day by day, and thank God you can know that Savior tonight, and you can know one whom to know is life eternal. If you don't know him, trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight. We're going to sing a couple of verses of hymn number 18. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, brothers and sisters, draw near, praise him in glad adoration. We sing the first and the last verses of the hymn, verses 1 and 5, and we'll stand as we sing. a word of prayer. Do remember the tea, don't go away, uh, but remain behind for a little time of fellowship. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee for our God this evening. We thank thee for the reality of God's word and God's salvation. And our Father, we do thank thee tonight for the morality that God has given us, that basis of ethics that is found in his precious word. We do thank thee for the ordering of society. We do thank thee for the restraint that is put on the evil of men and women in this day. And we do thank thee, our God, that this world runs because of the superintendence of our God. And our Father, we pray that thou wouldst write these things upon our hearts. We pray that thou wouldst part us in thy fear and with thy blessing, take of our thanks for the good things that have been prepared for us. And we pray that we might eat and drink to thy glory. And then as we go, we'd ask that thou wouldst take us to our homes in safety and watch over us in these incoming days. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.